It's your pal Siri. You have found the Ambiguously Blind Podcast, where we are challenging beliefs and revealing abilities that make people extraordinary. With your host, a guy that's great at hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, hey, hey. Greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. My guest for this episode is Ali Ingersoll, who is Miss Wheelchair America 2023. I met Ali a few months ago during an event that we were both on for an organization called Unblinded, and we had a lot of fun with it, and I was really intrigued by Ali and her story and really wanted to get her on the podcast to dig a little deeper. Hey, Ali, thanks for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Thanks for having me, John. Super excited to be here. Yeah, we met a few, I don't know, maybe it's been months ago now on a uh, thing we did for Unblinded. It was. That was actually one of the most fun Zoom events I've been to. I've never been a judge, a lightning fire round judge. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was <laughs> it was interesting. And uh, I was really intrigued by something that you said during that. Uh, you, if anybody wants to know where that is, it's on Facebook somewhere. It was done in, was that on I think it was Mar- actually, it, you know what? It was St. Patrick's Day. It was, it was March 17th Day. of this year. Well, I actually have the specific link, John, that I got from Unblinded. It's hard to find, so I can send that to you. Bonus. Okay. And we will include mm-hmm. that in the show notes of this episode. So it'll be real easier for people to see just how crazy I am and how interesting you were, Allie, because we had to give fun facts there. And you definitely won the contest for the most funnest fact. When Sean Callagy, he was, uh, I, I was taken aback when he said out of 4,200 people, that was the weirdest, fun, most fun, different fact. But yes, I, I have had a very uh, different life, one could say. Yes, I was so intrigued by that. I was like, I have got to talk to you on the podcast. <laughs> so uh, after enough time has transpired, here we are. Indeed, and happy to be here. So we'll do that, and we'll get into more into that fun fact here in just a little bit. But I have some super hard-hitting questions I want to ask you up front, Allie. Um, yes. So hopefully you don't get too uncomfortable here, but we're going to try to reveal a little bit about you to get to know you a little better, okay? I I love hard-hitting questions. What is your favorite band or type of music? Ooh, great question, and no one ever guesses this. I love 1950s music and Harry Belafonte is by far my favorite artist, specifically Shake Senora and Deo. <laughs> wow, that's pretty specific. I know, <laughs> I know. So what is it about 50s? Uh, my mother brought me up with oldies and I remember being in college and we would go out to the bars and at 4 a.m. in the morning and they would play like Frank Sinatra, try to kick everyone out and I refused to leave. <laughs> How many countries have you lived in? Oh gosh, um, I've lived in England, France, Germany, China, Australia, New Zealand, Bahamas, United States. I think that covers it for where I've actually lived. I've got that at about eight. That was pretty fast. Is that right? Sound right? Roughly, yes. <laughs> okay, and which what's the which one did you have the most fun in? Definitely Australia. I was um, 16-ish when I graduated high school, and I didn't want to go to university yet for the simple reason is I wanted to be of the proper drinking age. <laughs> I wish I had a better reason, but I don't. <laughs> and I moved I moved over to China, um, and I was living there, and I was dating an Italian kickboxing instructor, learned the language, worked over there, and we got in a big fight, and I had a friend who was living in Australia, so I just left him in Shanghai, and I moved down to Australia for six months. <laughs> 
Okay, so on the heels of that question, I think mm -hmm. I may know the, the answer to this next one, but have you ever been arrested? I have been arrested um, when I was traveling to a northern city called Harbin in northern China near the Mongolia border. Um, I was traveling with my Italian boyfriend at the time and we couldn't pay for the hotel. And this was back in, oh gosh, 2000, a while ago. I'm aging myself out right now. And because we didn't have um, our passports to pay, they wouldn't let me use an ID, so they threw us in jail. And how long did you stay there? For the better part of the week. At this point, there were still phone cards. And for the young ones out there, I know phone cards are not a thing anymore. But that's how we used to have to make international calls. And I called my mom and I said, Mom, I love you. I'm going to jail. If you don't hear from me in a week, call the State Department. Otherwise, let me try to get out of jail. <laughs> and then I used the last two minutes to call my friend who was shooting a movie down in Hong Kong. She was Australian. And I said, please fly up to Harbin. Bring 500 US dollars because I'm going to jail and I think we can bribe bribe our way out. Apparently you did because you're not in jail now. I I did, but I almost left the Italian boyfriend there. It was it was a toss up. I, I couldn't decide. But um, my friend said you cannot leave a boyfriend in, in, in prison. That is not that is not a nice thing to do. So I begrudgingly paid for him too. <laughs> okay. And all of your travels and all these countries you've been to, you've got to have eaten something pretty bizarre. What is the craziest thing you've eaten? Um, gosh, that's a toss-up between three things. Um, in Beijing, they have something called the night market, and they have all kinds of weird, exotic um, culinary delicacies. And so I ate fried scorpions on a stick, which kind of tasted like French fries. But I used to, I grew up in the Bahamas, was kind of home base. And so I used to get bitten by scorpions a lot. They're not poisonous there, but they hurt and you get very swollen. So it was kind of revenge on the scorpions for me. And then number two, they had whale's blood, but they kind of, they kind of froze it and they looked like ice cubes. It was really not brilliant, but I am a believer of trying everything once. And then I ate deer penis in Russia near the Mongolian border and I mistranslated it and I didn't realize what I was eating until after I ate it. <laughs> Hmm. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Man, between number two and three there, I don't know which one to give. Huh. The winner too? Yeah. <laughs> I have a philosophy in life of doing it for the story because you never know what's going to happen. Man. And sometimes it works well and sometimes it does not work well. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, that's got to be good stories with that. Wow lots of fun and now you know i have a you know at the end of the day at the end of your life you're not going to remember how hard you worked you're going to remember those memories and those experiences you had and i just finished finished a book called the power of moments which speaks directly to that you know what is that moment in your life that somebody speaks about or that you create for yourself right yeah you know what that's interesting that book is on my reading list interestingly i just finished listening to it and it's fantastic all right. Well, that's all the hard-hitting questions I got, Allie. So you're off the hot. Oh, those that. are your hard. Those are your hard-hitting questions. Okay. So now let's get to the easy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You are also, as I mentioned previously, uh, Miss Wheelchair America 2023. The current. Yes, title holder. Title holder. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I won Miss Wheelchair America in 2022 in August. So I have a few more months left in my reign and it's an advocacy competition. So um, I think it was about 24 states have their own local competitions first. And then whoever wins your state competition 
then you proceed on to nationals. Okay, so America would imply that you came from an American state. Are you in North Carolina? Is that where you are? I am. I live. I presently reside in Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah, well, that's a that's an important distinction here because you've been all over the place. So we got to. This is true. Yes, there is not. As I'm aware, I think there's a Miss Wheelchair Universe in Dubai. I just found out about it recently, but I um I think um I. It's been a beautiful experience, but um, I'm I'm happy to be just a crown holder once. <laughs> so, how did you how do you get involved in that? I was asked actually the um, United Spinal, which is the largest spinal cord injury association in the country. They each have independent local chapters. So the local chapter in North Carolina, I'm friends with the executive director, and she asked me to run. My platform is health insurance advocacy. So. My, uh, we can get into it, but um, I, I fight health insurance companies for fun and help people get the medically necessary equipment they need to not only survive in life, but to thrive through navigating the appeals process. And that kind of blew up nationally after I won a whole bunch of equipment and I went to the media. And, and um, so that was, that is my platform. Wow. You fight health insurance companies for fun. Is that what you said? Yes. I had spent a year in about 2015, 2016 in bed. 365 days with a giant pressure sore on my backside. So it was a big hole over my tailbone. And those, when you have a spinal cord injury, they can take up to a year to heal multiple surgeries. And I was working professionally, just day trading at the time. And I was really bored. I was reading, I had a routine, but um, I kept getting denied things from Blue Cross and Blue Shield. So I took it upon myself to read the fine print of insurance companies and corporate policies write my own letters of medical necessity with peer-reviewed journal articles. And I would just have my doctor sign off on it because, well, they didn't have to do any work. So they were very happy to do so. And then I started winning different pieces of equipment, durable medical equipment I needed. And I was like, ah, and I started writing about it just very casually on Facebook. And I didn't realize what a demand there was for this and how many people are suffering today. Um, and and my my thinking behind that is, you know, those of us with significant disabilities, whatever they may be in the pan disability community, we utilize our health insurance quite a lot. How are we supposed to thrive and be contributing members of society in our professional lives and our advocacy lives, whatever that may be, if our health needs aren't being taken care of, right? So that is a basic high, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so, um, you know, every day, it's an unpaid day job. It's definitely not fun. I love to streamline the process for people. I've written a whole website on it. And multiple podcasts and articles, you name it. So that is just, I, I believe in hu uh, human kindness and paying it forward. So uh, each week I try to dedicate 20% of my week just to helping the human race. Um, and no matter how many grumpy people I encounter in this world, I do not let that stop me. <laughs> and I live in the world of dark humor. You have to when you have a significant disability, I think at times. And um, I just, you know, I have a loving family. So we, we, we always find humor behind everything. Yeah. You got to laugh. You got to laugh. Oh, absolutely. So the reason for the wheelchair in this, um, bed time you spent there was from a C6 injury. I, I don't know much about C6. It says complete quadriplegic. Yeah. A lot of people, um, a lot of people ask me that question and I, I explain spinal cord injury like this. When you break your neck or your back, um, essentially what it is, is it's really just a bruise. So your spinal cord is made up of a bunch of nerve bundles surrounded by spinal fluid. And then you have the vertebrae. A lot of people think when you break um, your vertebrae, that's what makes you paralyzed. It absolutely does not. It is the bruise. 
And the bruise, unlike if you hurt your arm, it doesn't heal. And that is a safety mechanism of the body because if the bruise ascended upwards and spread, it could go to your, your, um, the base of your skull, your brainstem, it would kill you instantly. So it essentially is like this bruise just kind of stuck in time for the rest of your life. And depending how paralyzed you are is how thick that bruise is. So if your bruise is 360 degrees around, that means from below the level of injury, which I'll explain mine in a moment, you have no sensation and no feeling. And if you have a bruise that has holes in it, essentially, right, it's just kind of a patchwork bruise, then you have um, signals like neuron signals um, called an incomplete injury where you have a higher chance of functional recovery. So you could break your neck, but you could be walking or you could be moving a leg. So I'm a complete injury. So my bruise is like 360 degrees around because by the time when I broke my neck in the Bahamas in 2010, in a shallow water diving accident, it took a Herculean effort, multiple medic back jets and a hurricane and 22 hours later to get me to a hospital in the United States. So I was kind of, I was kind of a goner before I even began. So as a C6 quadriplegic, I am um, paralyzed from the chest down. My hands are paralyzed, but my upper and my triceps. So I have, um, I can move my arms, my upper arms. So it doesn't look like I'm as paralyzed as I am, but um, I work out a lot. I eat really healthy. Um, and I, a lot of, I focus on a lot of adaptive behavior. So you can move your arms, but not your hands. Is that right? Um, yes, that's correct. Or your fingers, I, should, I guess, or maybe your hands. Yeah, I can't move my, like I can extend my wrists upwards. So it looks like sometimes I'm holding my phone, but I'm just like leaning the phone on the weight of my paralyzed hand. So I call them my paws, my little paws. <laughs> and I, I swipe with my little paralyzed finger and, but I need full-time help, like full-time caregiving all the time. Yeah. Okay. So that happened. Shallow water diving, you said? Shallow water diving accident on a beautiful day at my home in the Bahamas. So I grew up around the world, but we always had the Bahamas as home base in my family. Um, and so I had moved, I was in politics at the time in my twenties. I got jaded by the political system. So I moved back home to become a technical analysis day trader. And my dad was my mentor and life was amazing. I was 27. I was working out. I was tan. I was tall. I, I thought I had a rocking body. I, I really remember saying to my mom that day, and she remembers this, that I said, I have the perfect life. I wouldn't change a thing, mom. <laughs> yeah. 10 minutes later. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can relate. Uh, I had a, you know, sort of uh, I guess similar in the sense that I have bacterial meningitis, which is a spinal. Yes, and, very uh, familiar. Yeah, so it affects the, the spinal fluid. And prior to that, I, you know, I was a ten feet tall, bulletproof college yeah. sophomore. So you know, nothing. You just never know. Nothing could stop what's me. Gonna you know? happen. Yeah. I mean, when people say, you know, you don't know what's coming around tomorrow. Live for tomorrow. We always live in the future. We live in our anxieties, and I get that. I have my own. But there's something that profoundly happens for everyone I know, most people I know with disabilities and, and things have actually traumatically happened to them, their perspective on life just changes and you just look at things differently. And then stuff doesn't matter. Cars and houses and all that stuff. It's about relationships and people for me anyway. Yeah. And you had something else that I had to help me in my experience was a pretty good family. I think you mentioned that. Yes. You know, I work with folks who don't have families. Uh, Medicare, Medicaid, working with agencies and caregivers. I mean, it's it, it's almost like a full-time job that's unpaid and it's scary and it's terrifying. And 
if you are fortunate to have a family that is supportive mentally, physically, emotionally, financially, your chances of your outlook on life are just, they're greater. And, you know, it's a sad truth and it's a reality, but I'm also a big believer in normalizing highly uncomfortable topics and disability with, you know, a dark humor spin in general, but there is no humor spin on that. That is just when you're fortunate to have that. And I feel blessed. And that's why I really don't complain. Yes, I'm paralyzed. Yes, I live in pain, blah, blah, blah. But um, I have so much going for me at the same time. I think so anyway. And one of the things that I read about you was some advice that your dad gave you, um, I I guess, probably pretty early on, at least after the injury. Uh, He said, kid, you broke your body, not your brain. Get to work. (laughs) Yeah. So I think in the last uh, 15 or so minutes, we could Pretty, uh, I mean, you, you fight insurance companies for fun, so um, you definitely got the brain thing going on. Uh, you know what the thing is? You know, everyone automatically thinks I just know a lot, but even in school, I was always the type of student. I got A's, but I took copious notes. I recopied my notes. I study them every day. Nothing comes easy for me. I have to work really, really hard. I was never one of those kids who just go in, like cram the night before and get an A. That, so I, you know, like you, I'm sure, and so many others, we just have to work so hard for it, which is fine. But I do get sometimes jealous of those folks that just have those photographic memories that can look at it once and be like, oh, I got it. Yeah, that wasn't me either. So I can yeah. relate to that. And I think you stay pretty busy today with lots of different things that you work on. Of One of them is advocacy, like with the Miss Wheelchair America thing. It's a kind of an mm-hmm. advocacy platform, I think, too. But you do exactly. some other things. Yeah, professionally, um, I went through, I think it's called a midlife crisis <laughs> a couple years ago, where I had my entrepreneurial background, political business, day trading with my advocacy. And so I wanted to marry them together. So I went on the Herculean mission of changing my entire life and career and just deciding to blow it all up. <laughs> and so I um, dove into the world of uh, being a corporate disability strategy consultant. And I thought I wanted to work for a corporation at first, but I found that. Um, even though I was 100% capable of doing the job, I didn't necessarily have the right resume requirements, which I, that's a topic for another time. And I started Zooming with everyone on the planet that would chat with me, just not asking for a job, just trying to get a lay of the DEI landscape, diversity, equity, and inclusion landscape with a focus of disability. And I met these gorgeous people who have these smaller to mid-sized companies that do disability inclusion in different capacities. And so I started working for them as a consultant. And I spent about half my week working with a gorgeous organization called Open Inclusion. And they're an inclusive disability um, research house um, for disability inclusion and age-inclusive research. So essentially, we work with large corporate brands to make products, services, digital environments more accessible for people with all disabilities. And we have a beautiful community pan-disability community um, where we pay for research. They can get involved in conversations, find employment opportunities, um, and different educational opportunities. And they have a handful of other clients I work with, and I work with um, corporate ERGs, and I coach them, and I work on disability inclusion, um, uh, hiring inclusive hiring practices with organizations, and I also work with um, healthcare um, companies and hospitals as well here in North Carolina. And I've gotten into keynote speaking, which I absolutely love to be on stage. I'm My mission is, I always, I'm always curious about what is that spark that ignites change in people specifically? It's not just about passion, 
So passion is very individualistic, right? You may be passionate or I may be passionate about something, but not everyone else is. But how do you turn that passion into a purpose? And a purpose is a shared collective goal. And then how do you turn that purpose into an actionable plan? So that is kind of my message with my backstory of disability of of how I got there. When you're engaging with some of these companies that you're working with, are, are most companies receptive to this? I have not had a problem so far. I Whether they take my recommendations because I'm not their full-time employee, that's a different matter. Um, the people I work with, but I'm very selective of who I work with. I'm at a point, I just turned 40, where I'm not going to work with people or organizations I don't believe in who are not going to actually take action on what they say. But that's me. <laughs> I'm a little picky there. Do you have any great success stories with that? Is there anybody or any organization that you've turned around and really helped? Yes, but I am under NDA, so I can't really talk about it <laughs> with the names of the organization specifically. But um, with, I mean, broad strokes about ERGs, how they finally got employee resource groups, um, especially disability ones, how they finally got funding and got buy-in from senior leaders and creating a very firm structure about their um, articles of incorporation and their mission and their vision and creating events within their organization to make people feel safe and included. So when I think about diversity, equity, inclusion, there's so much lip service around that. But when you think of the D and the I, the inclusion part is the linchpin, right? But inclusion refers to behaviors. And you have to take it a step further to this concept of belonging, right? How do employees feel, bring their authentic selves to work, to feel safe, heard, and seen, and valued? And so belonging is really is an outcome um, of inclusive behaviors. So I focus a lot on belonging and what that means. And not just for people with disabilities, all people, all employees, because there is so much research out there that you can cite about, you know, employees that don't have the sense of inclusion and belonging. They leave their jobs, um, loss of productivity, loss of revenue. You know, we won't get into all the data, but it's all out there. And do you find that disability is oftentimes included in the inclusion discussion? Absolutely not. We are getting left out of the conversation left and right, because especially in the onset of the last few years, um, it's been about diversity racially and women and LGBTQ and disability is still just straggling behind. And that is why I pay so much attention to this, because it's challenging. People are afraid. They don't know how to ask the right questions. They avoid it because there's so many disabilities, 80% of them are unseen, right? And, you know, eight out of 10 people acquire a disability, uh, are going to um, acquire a disability in their lives at some point. Um, People with disabilities comprise of 30% of the workforce, and they are not feeling safe at work to disclose their disabilities because unconsciously and oftentimes unintentionally, but not inexcusably, they don't feel that that they're that they are going to be discriminated against for expressing what their access needs are. What do they need at work to be successful? Whether that's a physical accommodation, whether that's they have sensory issues with light or technology, right? So that's where I try to focus my energies. Yeah, and that's kind of more on the advocacy and self advocacy route. You work with people individually on that too, right? Um, yes, on the not on the business side, but on the advocacy side as well. Mm-hmm. So what what do you tell people there? On the advocacy side, well, on the advocacy side, I focus a lot on different legislation issues um, that are 
for a lot of people with mobility impairments. So I'm very involved with national organizations where I'm really proud to announce that um, the ITEM Coalition, which is the Independence Through Enhancement of Medicare and Medicaid, it's a coalition of a lot of us. Um, we have been advocating for Medicare to reclassify seat elevators as medically necessary, as durable medical equipment, because previously they were just luxury items. But we've proven without a shadow of a doubt that raising your chair up, if you are in a power wheelchair, it can help you cook. It can help you go to the bathroom. It can raise your chair up to a level surface on the bed. So when you transfer, you don't shear your skin. And last Tuesday, the Tuesday before last, Medicare just came out and said, effective immediately are reclassifying seat elevators as durable medical equipment. So people do not have to fight like I did reaching out to 57 news stations to have my seat elevator approved because, well, frankly, I can be a pain in the ass, <laughs> but in the best way possible. Yeah. That's a that dirty humor you're talking about, I guess, right? Right. I know. Or dark humor. I'm sorry, not dirty. Dark yeah, humor. But, yeah. So now we're on. So those are the advocacy this year. I just came back from my 40th birthday trip to Costa Rica and Delta Airlines um, crushed my chair on the way back in the Atlanta airport. And so I just did a story on that. And this year in the United States, uh, at least airline travel is a huge issue because there's a 50, 50% chance they're going to break your chair. There just is. So we're trying 50, to amend 50% the chance. Oh gosh. Yes. I mean, you wow. literally just, if you just type in Google, uh, airline wheelchair damage, you just get dozens and dozens of stories from all the major outlets, from Forbes, from USA Today, from the Washington Post, you name it. This is a very serious issue. And it's akin, really, to having someone, when you get off the plane, take a baseball bat to an able-bodied person and break their legs. So what happens in flight with the wheelchair? I created this incredible structure with a box and shrink wrap and you name it. And TSA and the guys, they destroy it. And you don't really know what happens behind the scenes. Yeah. Oftentimes they'll tip over the wheelchair. They'll just throw it on the conveyor belt. So now to be fair, some people with their wheelchairs, they don't package them up enough. So, you know, that's on them to an extent. But I also know that airline carriers, they do not directly train their staff. They use third parties for all of their ground handling. So there's a big disconnect. And I learned this because when I spent four hours in the airport filing claims at 12 at night in the Atlanta airport, I had a lot of time on my hands, so I started to just speak to people, <laughs> and they just started to divulge all kinds of information to me. <laughs> wow. So has that situation been resolved? Yes. They just fixed my chair because um, thankfully most of it was cosmetic because I packaged it so well, even though they cut it all apart. Um, and I think, well, I obviously cannot prove this, but I don't think I was going to get much of a stink because they, I wasn't asking them to pay for a new $30,000 wheelchair. It was just uh, cosmetic on the outside with things falling off of it here and there. Yeah. So those wheelchairs are pretty expensive, right? 30,000 bucks. Yes. Yeah, so like I got a, a fully loaded power wheelchair with all of the functions. They can go up to 35,000, anywhere from like 20 to 35,000. Wow. That is amazing. And were you able, does health insurance cover that? They do. If you fight, you have to justify every single button. And the problem with um, health insurance in general is if you don't take control and, and you're not your own self-advocate, doctors, physical therapists, they don't mean to, but they have so many patients that they oftentimes put the wrong code in or they write a three-sentence letter of medical necessity. And of course, insurance is going to not deny it. And you know, I was astonishingly, I was giving a keynote speech to the Healthcare Financial Management Association a few months ago in North Carolina. And um, 
in for the health insurance marketplace plans in the United States under Obamacare, one-tenth of 1%, one-tenth of 1% of claims that are denied are actually appealed. So people aren't appealing these claims. So that's what insurance is banking on, which is what I am trying to change. Yeah, wow. That's crazy. Mm, I know. It's it's um, disturbing is the word I would use. So where do we go from here, Allie? What's, what's next for you? You just mentioned a whole lot of things that are going on. But you got to streamline. You so you have twenty four hours in your day, right? Oh, you I know. And if four hours of those are taken just for caregiving and life and bowel and bladder and bathing and dressing as a C six quadriplegic. So you know, I get up at five a.m. in the morning and I go to bed around ten or eleven at night. So what are you going to fill with those hours for the uh, foreseeable future? Well, I'm going to continue everything I'm doing because my calendar is in red. But I'm taking some time over the next couple months. And I really want to build up my keynote speaking career. So I'm building a website just for my speaking website. And I'm going down to the National Speakers Association 50th anniversary um, conference in Orlando in July, which I'm really excited about because I've started to befriend TED Talkers <laughs> and asking them about like keys to success. And, you know, I took a bunch of courses with um, uh, an organization, um, IDEO, on um, communicating for impact and storytelling for influence. So my dream is to be on the TED stage or at least the TEDx stage. So that is one of my personal life missions. And then I'm contemplating taking a year of my life of probably hell, I'm not going to lie, of going to get an executive MBA <laughs> during a weekend program. Okay. Well, you're going to be busy. Yep. And I, I don't have no doubt that we'll see you on a uh, TED stage, just a matter of when and where. That's exciting. Exactly. There's a whole strategy with the whole TEDx applications. I learned this when I went to a couple of TEDx conferences and I befriended some of the speakers and um, it's complicated. It requires a lot of work. And some people even pay $10,000 to these consultants who put in all their applications and they coach them. But I vow to myself, I'm not paying anyone any money to become a TEDx speaker that would, that would go against uh, me personally. Plus I don't have $10,000 laying around, which would be great if I did. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, I may hitch up for some of that advice because I have a similar plan in mind for myself. So interesting. Okay. I love to share all advice. Anything I learn is open knowledge. It's like open for everyone. Awesome. All right, Allie. Well, thanks a bunch for stopping by and hanging out with us for a little bit. John, I've had a fabulous time. And when we, you were on a blinded, you were presenting your idea. You were in the hot spot and I was just a judge there. And you did such a fantastic job. I love what you stand for. I love what you're doing. And I'm a big believer with all of us, with anyone on the planet, but especially with disabilities, we have to band together, build each other up and promote each other. I appreciate that, Allie. I feel the same way about you. And the unblinded thing, what I was doing was, I mean, I was, I was pitching sort of an idea, um, but it, it, it really is kind of what I'm doing. I am in the, I'm in the final stages here of finishing a uh, book proposal and getting that out into the world. And I, I do need somebody to write a forward. That is on my to-do list, a book proposal. I've been approached multiple times and I just don't have enough hours in my day yet, but that is definitely on my list. So I should chat with you about that. Yeah. You certainly have a story to tell, Allie. It's, it is definitely intriguing. So it's just right. It's fine. I mean, you tell me about your book writing. It's about finding the time. <laughs> it is. And, uh, we, uh, we have limited of that. So I know. <laughs> so I'll let you go to get onto it, Allie. Thanks a bunch for stopping Amazing. by. Thanks, John. Have a great day. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind Podcast. 
please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.